0: Each apostle had a specific function and that each made a unique contribution. And then he traces those spiritual functions back to the physical tasks that each was doing when Jesus called him. For instance, Peter was a fisherman. When Jesus called him in Matthew 4.18, he was casting his net into the sea. Jesus made him a fisher of men. And that was his ministry. You'll you'll remember he was the one Jesus in Matthew 16, 19 gave the keys of the kingdom. And he unlocked the door to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. He unlocked the door to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. He unlocked the door to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. He was a fisher of men. Paul was a tent maker. He made things. And the ministry given to him was to build. He not only laid the foundation but he built upon it. He calls himself in 1 Corinthians 3:10 a wise master builder. And he is attributed with laying the doctrinal foundation 13 epistles in the New Testament. He was a builder. Then we come to John. You know what John was doing? when Jesus called him Matthew 4:21 tells us he was sitting in his boat mending his nets and that's the ministry that Jesus called him to he was a mender now when Jesus called the 12 disciples John was probably the youngest He was a teenager. He was probably 17 or 18 years old when Jesus called him. And he also lived longer than any of the other apostles. He wrote 1 John in about 95 A.D. That's 20 or 25 years after Peter and Paul had died. See, this was one time when Peter didn't get the last word. John did. And as John writes this letter, the church has been in existence for about 65 years. Many of the Christians are children and grandchildren of the original Christians. These are second and third generation Christians that he's writing to. And you know what characterized the church at the end of the first century? Many of the same things that characterize the church today. Let me mention three. Number one, they were growing cold. Now, we're not told who John addresses this letter to. He really wasn't writing to anybody in particular. He was writing to everybody. That's why this letter is referred to as one of the general epistles, along with James and the epistles of Peter and Jude. But most Bible students agree that this letter was directed to the churches in Asia Minor, particularly the church in Ephesus, where John spent a great deal of his ministry and John penned another letter to the church at Ephesus about this same time. And it's recorded in Revelation 2, 1. And the message from the Lord Jesus is, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You see, the thrill and the glory of those early days had faded. The newness had, begin, had begun to wear off, and their love had grown cold second thing that characterized the church at the end of the first century is they were beginning to compromise. The early Christians paid a great price for their faith. Many of them lost their homes, their possessions, their lives. But many of their children and their grandchildren of those first Christians didn't want to pay that same price. And they found out the way to do that was to not be so different from the world. To fit in, to blend in, to compromise. And then there's a third characteristic. And that is they were becoming confused. By the end of the first century, Satan's strategy had changed. Plan A was to destroy the church. When he found out that persecution only helped the church, he changed to plan B. And plan B was to deceive the church. Plan A was to attack from the outside. Plan B was to attack from the inside. Plan A was to oppose the church. Plan B was to join the church. And Satan had accomplished that by the end of the first century. That's why when you look over at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. False prophets. Chapter 2, verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. False prophets, deceivers, Antichrists. And John says, there are many. And as a result, the Christians were confused. So the church at the end of the first century was growing cold, beginning to compromise, and becoming confused. And so John the Mender steps forward. And he writes this letter to call them back to authentic Christianity. And there are three things that John is going to say. They are the three themes that we will find throughout this letter. And they are these. Get back to truth. Get back to righteousness. And get back to love. Are you confused? Get back to the truth. Are you compromising? Get back to righteousness. Are you cold? Get back to love. And those are the three keys to authentic Christianity. Believe, obey, and love. And John is going to weave those three ideas throughout this book. And he'll do it with the care that a fisherman does when he mends his net. He does it in love. He speaks as a father. He calls us over and over again his little children. He exudes compassion and concern and care as he calls us to authentic Christianity. John is a mender. Now I think it's important for us to understand that the reason that John can mend us is because he has been mended himself. Now often when we think of John, we get this image of some milk-toast, meek, mild, pale-skinned, effeminate guy that's just laying on Jesus' shoulder all the time. We need to realize John was a rugged fisherman. When you shook hands with John, he had calluses on his hand. And there were two things that characterized John prior to the cross. Number one, he had a hot temper. In Mark chapter three and verse 17, we're told that Jesus nicknamed him and his brother James the sons of thunder. Why was that? Because he was prone to anger. He was volatile. He was explosive. And when he got angry, he could be pretty hateful. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 54, he's the one who wanted to call down fire out of heaven and consume a town in Samaria. He had a hot temper. And then the second thing that characterized him prior to the cross was that he was proud. He was always arguing with the other disciples about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And he even, even had the audacity to send his mother to Jesus one time to ask for the prominent seat in the kingdom. See, John thought an awful lot of himself. But Jesus took John, this hot-headed, intolerant young man, and he turned him into the disciple we most associate with love. He uses the word love more than any other writer in the New Testament, over 80 times. He's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the one who leaned on Jesus' breast. He's the one to whom Jesus entrusted his mother when he was on the cross. And Jesus took John, this selfishly proud young man, and he turned him into the disciple we associate with humility. The one who wanted the prominent seat in the kingdom never names himself in his gospel or his three letters. And whenever he has to identify himself, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, why does he call himself that? Because he was so lovable? No. I think he calls himself that because he never got over the fact that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved me, the one who wanted to burn up the Samaritans. Jesus loved me, the one who wanted the place of honor. And so this proud and tolerant disciple became the humble, loving apostle. And that is authentic Christianity. And he writes this letter to call us to that same thing. Now, what can you expect to get out of this study in First John? Well, you know, if I asked you what three things you want most in life, I think we would probably come up with agreement that the three things we want most in life are I want to be happy, I want peace of mind, which comes through forgiveness, I want a clear conscience, and I want to know that I'm secure in the future. I want happiness, I want a clear conscience, and I want security. Now, most people go through life without those three things. In fact, they go through life with the very opposite. They go through life with sorrow, guilt, and insecurity. What can we expect to get out of this letter? Well, John tells us. Look at chapter 1 and verse 4. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Number one is joy. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. That you'll stay away from sin so you'll have a clear conscience. And then the third reason he writes is chapter 5 and verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. James is writing this letter calling us back to genuine Christianity, faith, obedience, and love, so that we will experience those three things that we want most in life and God wants most for us in life, joy, a clear conscience, and security. You know, it's interesting to draw a contrast between 1 John and John's Gospel. If you go back to John's Gospel He tells us the purpose for writing that gospel in John chapter 20 and verse 30. He says, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of the gospel was that you might believe The purpose of the epistle was 1 John 5.13, that you might know that you have eternal life. The purpose of the gospel was to have life. The purpose of the epistle was to know that you have life. The gospel was written to point you to faith in Christ. The epistle was written to point you to assurance of your faith in Christ. Now, for us to understand some of the things John says in 1 John, I think it's important for us to understand the kind of false teaching that he was confronting. He was confronting a false teaching that went by the name of Gnosticism. And it was kind of a combination of of Greek intellectualism and, and Eastern mysticism. And their two major premises were, number one, that all matter is evil. Everything that's physical is evil. Everything that is spiritual is good. Kind of a dualism. And then their second premise was that knowledge is supreme. And there were three things that characterized their teaching. Number one, they had a wrong view of Jesus. Now, because they believed that all matter was evil and because the body is matter, therefore they concluded God could not take on a body. And so they separated Jesus from the Christ. They taught that Jesus was, Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph just naturally. He lived a natural life. And then had His baptism, the Christ Spirit came upon Him. And then right before the cross, the Christ Spirit left. So He was not really God. He was just a normal person. And the Christ Spirit came and kind of hovered around Him from His baptism to prior to the cross. Notice how John directs his teaching at that idea. The very first verse in 1 John says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. John says the word was touchable. And then if you turn over to chapter 4 and verse 2, he confronts this again. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What's the emphasis? Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Because the false teaching contradicted that. And then if you look at chapter 5 and verse 6, he says, this is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood." Now you say, what's he talking about, water and blood? Well, he's talking here about his baptism and his death. And he's saying he didn't just come as the Christ Spirit in his baptism, he was Christ in his death. You know, it's interesting to contrast again the Gospel. First verse in the Gospel says, the Word was God. The emphasis of the Gospel was the deity of Christ. John quotes the Lord Jesus saying things like, Before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And it's John who records Thomas bowing down to the Lord Jesus and saying, My Lord and my God. John's Gospel emphasizes the deity of Christ. John's letter, 1 John, emphasizes the humanity of of the Lord Jesus He was God manifest in the flesh And so they had a wrong view of Jesus Secondly, they had a wrong view of obedience They separated spirit and flesh they, they, they said all matter is evil So their conclusion was your body is evil And they went on to sort of be indifferent about sin Since your body is evil You can't stop it from doing what it's going to do so their conclusion was it really didn't matter what you did. You could say, I'm not sinning because I'm spiritual even at the same time while your body is committing all kinds of sin. And John deals with that issue. In 1 John 1.8, notice what he says. If we say that we have no sin we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2 and verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John says, true spirituality results in true obedience. And then thirdly, they had a wrong view of love. Because they believed that all matter is evil, therefore your body is evil, so the only way to sort of circumvent your body is through this higher knowledge that they talked about, this intellectualism that they promoted. And you could sort of uh, get above the physical by intellectualism. And because of that, they divided people into two groups, the learned and the unlearned. And then they looked down on the unlearned and made fun of them. And so John writes to oppose that view in chapter 2 and verse 20. And notice what he says. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. How many know? All of you know. And how do you know? Because you worked intellectually to achieve something? No. You know because you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. You know because of the revelation given by the Spirit of God. And we all know. So there are no social distinctions. There aren't those who are learned and unlearned in the body of Christ. We all know because we all have the Spirit of God. And then to make it more practical, in 1 John 2, 9, he says, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And so the false teachers had a wrong view of Jesus, a wrong view of obedience, and a wrong view of love. And their teaching was infiltrating the church and robbing Christians of their joy, their clear conscience, and the security. And so John is writing this letter to bring us back to genuine Christianity. And to do that, he really lays out for us three tests in this letter. And I want you to see these things. He tells us there are three ways that we can know that we have eternal life. Number one is the theological test, and that's in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. We already read it before. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. First is the theological test, and it is that you believe in the name of the Son of God. He states it in the first verse of chapter 5 also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And so the theological test is proper faith in Jesus Christ. But then he gives a second test and that's the moral test. And we see that in chapter 2 and verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Now, be careful not to reverse this verse. It doesn't say we come to know God by obedience. Obedience is not the means of knowing God. It is the product of knowing God. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, before we were saved, we were called the sons of disobedience. After we became Christians, we're called in 1 Peter 1.14, children of obedience. And John is simply saying, Christians obey. And then there's a third test. The theological test, the moral test, and then the social test. And that's in 1 John 3.14. And there he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. You know one of the ways I know I'm a Christian? Because I love you. And verse 13 says, The world doesn't love you, and I didn't used to love you because I used to be part of the world. But I know I have passed out of life, out of death into life because I love the people that the world hates. That's test number three, the social test. So there are John's tests. Theological test, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. The moral test, I obey what Jesus says to do. And the social test, I love the others in the family of God. I know I'm a Christian because I believe, I obey, and I love. And you know what I find very interesting is that John gives equal weight to each one of these tests. Look at 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. If you flunk the theological test, John says you're a liar. Now, look at 1 John 2:4. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. If you flunk the moral test, John says you're a liar. And then 1 John 4:20 if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If you flunk the social test, you're a liar. So he takes all three of these tests and he puts them, gives them equal weight. You flunk any one of them, you're a liar. You say, well, Dan, isn't that adding works to faith? Isn't that making salvation by works? No. See, John is simply saying that true faith will result in a proper understanding of who Jesus is, in a desire to obey him, and in a love for others. John is simply telling us what James told us in James 2.17, that faith, if it has no works, is dead. Faith that produces nothing is not faith. The Reformers like to put it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Saving faith will always produce an obedient, loving heart. And you see, that is part of God's work in my life. Salvation is not just a past event, it is a present reality. The Bible tells me I am a new creation. Old things are passed away, all things have become new you see, I can look at my love as an evidence of salvation because it's not really my love. I'm not generating it. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so as I see myself loving you, it's evidence to me that God has changed my heart. And my works are an evidence of salvation because they're not really my works. I'm not generating them. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared them beforehand and He gave me the capacity to walk in those things. So John says, the tests are these, faith, obedience, and love. And those are the characteristics of genuine Christianity, and John says, I want to call you back to those things. Now, <clears throat> let me just close this introduction this morning by pointing out three characteristics of this letter. Number one, it's convicting. When I first became a believer, I went to, the, to 1 John, and I found myself underlining several verses in 1 John that were my favorite verses. But I also skipped over some verses that troubled me in 1 John because they were too convicting for me to underline. 1 John, as we go through it, is going to be a very convicting book. And it's convicting for several reasons. Number one, with John, there is no middle ground. He sees things in absolutes. You're in the light or you're not in the light. You have life or you don't have life. You're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You're of the world or you're not of the world. You either love or you hate. And he has no third alternative. He allows for no exceptions. Now, if you like exceptions, read Paul. Paul will give you exceptions once in a while. In 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, Paul says there's the natural man, that's the unsaved man. There's the spiritual man, that's the Christian. And then he says there's this fleshly man, the the believer who's carnal. He kind of gives us the exception. We go, boy, I'm glad I fit in there. But John doesn't do that. John sees things in absolute. There's no middle ground with him. And so he's convicting. He's also convicting because he doesn't put up with our hypocrisy. Look at chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. Your talk is not going to be an excuse for your walk. Chapter 2, verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. Verse 9, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Chapter 4 and verse 20, If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. John doesn't put up with our nice, flowery, spiritual speech. He wants to know the reality of what we're doing in our faith, in our obedience, in our love for others. He's convicting He's also convicting because <clears throat> having established these tests, he doesn't then water them down. You know, he doesn't set the test and then say, now we're going to grade on a curve. He established the test and then he raises the standard. You know what a standard for love is? 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What's the standard of love? It's the Lord Jesus laying down His life for us. And that's what we ought to be doing for each other. What's the standard for obedience? 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. The end of that verse says, By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. There's a standard for obedience. Just walk like Jesus walked. What's our standard for love? It's the Lord Jesus. What's our standard for obedience? It's the Lord Jesus. And that is convicting. And so this is a convicting letter. Let me say a second thing about the characteristic of this letter. It's a family letter. John's writing is warm. There's a personal touch. He's talking not so much from his mind as he is from his heart. This letter reminds me of you're kind of sitting around the the table is a family just talking with John. And that's the way he interacts in this letter. Father is used 15 times. Children is used 14 times. Brother is used 14 times. He's showing us how to be rightly related with our father and rightly related with our brothers and sisters in the family of God. He uses the word life 13 times because that's our common bond. That's what brings us together in the family of God. And he uses the word love 43 times because that's the key to all our relationships. And then a third and final characteristic of this letter, it's not logical. You know, Paul writes like a lawyer building his case John writes like a fisherman mending his net. And he's just weaving ideas in and out. And I say that because this is going to be a very difficult book to outline. Uh, For example, look at look at chapter three and verse twenty two. He says, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. There's obedience. And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. There's faith. And love one another just as He commanded us. So He's worked them all in there. He's got believe, obey, and love all weaved together in those two verses. And what's He telling us? He's telling us that we need to believe, we need to obey, and we need to love. And we, when we have those three key ingredients woven together in our lives, then we will experience joy, a clear conscience, and security. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to just introduce this great letter. This letter written in the latter part of the first century to call the church back to authentic Christianity. And here as we are 2,000 years later, we need that same message. And Lord, we do sense that we have grown cold and we need a call to come back to our first love. We also sense that we compromise and we need to hear the call to love not the world. And we also find ourselves confused because there's so much teaching, false teaching, false ideas in the church today. And Father, we need to be called back to the truth. And Lord, as we go through these, these, this letter together from the Apostle John in the weeks to come, I pray that You'll call each of us personally back to authentic Christianity so that we might experience your joy, your peace, and your security. We pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.